I think that was something that I came back to later where it was more of this honesty with materials, which is definitely something that's informing my practice now. It's like one of the rules I've set up for myself. Like everything that's there is being itself. It's not necessarily pretending to be something that it isn't. It just might be placed in a context that you're not accustomed to seeing it in. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 163rd episode, I'm joined by Josh Johnson, who is a sculpture and installation artist based out of Nebraska. We talk about ordinary materials and how he makes something extraordinary about them. And, of course, he provides all sorts of insight into his work. It's all very interesting, so please stay tuned for that. We also want to mention that Josh was one of our finalists from 2015's uh, Studio Break competition, so we're very excited to have him on. We do this competition every year, and there will be a new one coming up um, shortly to be announced, so please stay tuned for that. If you're an artist looking to apply for something, there'll be more information uh, in August. Otherwise, if you are a new listener, you can check out many of the archived episodes on studiobreak.com. So please go there, check out some of the great interviews that you missed. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's work as well as links to their websites. So please check out all the information there. You can also find out more about Studio Break on our Tumblr page, that's studio-break.tumblr, or, of course, on Facebook, so please like our page there. Again, a great way to get updated with new episodes. And you can always send us uh, interesting artwork at Studio Break on Twitter, so please say hello there as well. And with that out of the way, here is our interview with Josh Johnson. Stay tuned. Welcome, Josh Johnson, to uh, your edition of Studio Break. Uh, happy to have you. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be with you. Again, it seems like forever ago, but you were selected by um, our juror from um, Exchange Works, uh, Julia Friedman, to be on Studio Break. So again, thank you so much for your patience, uh, and uh, yeah, we're excited to have you on finally. Um, and remind us again, where, where are you today? Where are we speaking with you from? Well, I'm at home right now in Lincoln, Nebraska. Awesome. And again, you've been making art for quite a while. Again, uh, you have uh, both degrees. You've been living out there for a chunk and, and making work. Could you just, uh, I guess, talk a little bit about your background in terms of uh, where you grew up as a kid? And, and especially, I want to know, um, I don't know, were you an apprentice at some point? Or <laughs> was uh, yeah. art making or kind of creative life uh, something that came later? Or what, what kind of stuff were you interested in when you were a kid? Well, I'm originally from Minnesota, and I grew up uh, near the Red River Valley of the North on the North Dakota-Minnesota border. So being about 45 minutes from Fargo, North Dakota, small rural community called Pelican Rapids. So... I didn't grow up in the town. My family uh, or my parents built a log home probably four or six miles from town. So situated in a, a rural kind of pastoral area with lots of fields, um, woods, ponds and lakes dotting uh, the landscape around me. So very, very pretty place to be living for sure. And that being said, it's kind of segues into how I was brought up. Um, 
in the early eighties where it was, it was kind of okay. I think still to like let kids go about their own business and kind of, uh, learn things on their own. The helicopter parent was not around yet. And, uh, my mom was a, a stay at home mom and she, she kind of left my brother and I to our own devices. So we were oftentimes exploring uh, the landscape around us and inventing our own play, whether that was building uh, structures together like forts, or I remember building fences for invisible animals or imagined animals. Mm -hmm. And then also spending a lot of time in my bedroom drawing. So I think, you know, that was something that was always there. And it wasn't until later in life that I thought I might be able to make a career out of it. You know, having kind of maybe spent some time somewhat in that area, um, and especially as you kind of drive out west, you'll kind of go past um, areas where there's just like um, people have everything like in a scrapyard in their front lawn mm-hmm. area. Um, yeah. Is, was there stuff around like that when you were a kid? I, I'm trying, especially since landscape is so interesting to me. Like I'm trying to think like, are there hills? Are there, you know, is it desolate? Is there, um, you know, just long distance vistas that you wind up looking at? What, what was it sure. like? I guess. I'm- well, it, where I like at my parents' place, we were uh, nestled on top of a hill with woods below it, fields all around. Mm-hmm. Very verdant during the summer, uh, very cold during the winter, and kind of bleak. But just miles away is the Great Plains, and my my mother's parents had a farm on the prairie, and that was an area where there was a lot more like freestanding scrap piles and these larger vistas where the sky gets a lot bigger. Um, so it's very, I, I guess, on a tri- um, transitional boundary between the great plains and then the more hilly rolling woodlands with lakes so if i went west i had these big open spaces which i still living on now and -hmm. then if i went east it was much more um forested and traditionally beautiful you know what i mean (laughs) sure sure (laughs) traditionally beautiful i like that actually (laughs) and did you have a lot of experiences like making stuff i mean you talked a little bit about kind of uh, inventing forts or just kind of make doing stuff like that. Did you like start studying art? Well, I, I took art classes in high school and it was something I was always very engaged in, but it was also, I think rather limited. I wasn't going to museums. I was completely unaware of contemporary art. So I was approaching art from more of a animation and illustration background and, you know, was not familiar with some of these big household names um, that most artists, you know, um, were maybe aware of much earlier in their lives. But I I think as far as like building things too, I wasn't really taught how to do that at an early age. I mean, I took a shop class in junior high, but it was kind of more like I was doing a lot of the things I'm doing now where I'm inventing my own problems and finding some way to solve them. And there wasn't this kind of like, this is how you do this process this is how you do this process we were just figuring out what worked in the situation and when i say we i mean like my brother and i and so um i guess what brought you then to to north dakota uh to study were you kind of like set out at the time that you were going to do art or did you start off um uh forestology i don't know i made yeah. that up i maybe think <laughs> <laughs> I, I think like a lot of uh incoming freshmen to college like 
part of me didn't even know if I should be going to college or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really felt like during high school, I wasn't paying attention too much. I was coasting through a lot of classes. I wasn't necessarily being challenged. And everything just seemed like it was the next step, and that's the way it was set up to be. And I didn't have too much control over it. It was more like it was assumed this is what you're going to be doing. And um, I didn't want to go too far away from home. And the University of North Dakota is two hours away from where I grew up. And that seemed like far enough mm-hmm. um, where I you know, didn't have to come home all the time, but also could go home very easily if I wanted to. And uh, I was not interested in studying art at the onset because I really didn't know what I could do with it. So instead, I thought maybe I'll go into psychology (laughs) as if that's, you know, more useful than a studio art degree. But then very quickly found out that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I had about three semesters uh, as an undergrad where I was undecided and just taking the classes I wanted to take alongside uh, the classes I needed to take, like, for my generals. And I ended up taking a lot of history classes, a lot of anthropology classes, and then started taking some art classes. And I saw all these different things kind of sticking together, or they were being, there was like a thread going between them. And at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to fight this anymore. Art seems like where I fit in, and I'm just going to roll with it. That's the what I'm going to do with my time here. I'm curious because you kind of talked about having, you know, this, um, you know, no formal training or like, you know, you're like, you're going to figure out how to make stuff when you kind of decided to go, you know, with this impetus and then, and then start studying art. Was it something where you did get a lot of like experience in terms of technical stuff? Um, maybe, maybe it's not that exciting, but if it was kind of an <laughs> exciting thing then to kind of be like, you know, shown how to use things, uh, so that you keep all your, your fingers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, definitely during uh, the time when I was growing up, art was the most approachable process or not art, uh, drawing within art was the most, uh, approachable process where now maybe it's photography just mm-hmm. because everyone's carrying a, um, a camera on their phone these days. So I thought that's what I wanted to do because I had the most familiarity with it. And that's kind of, uh, I guess, in my mind, what I saw art as, um, as being more of a two-dimensional pursuit. And uh, I started taking printmaking classes because it was very related to drawing. And I realized I really liked the process and the repetition and the routines of printmaking. But I didn't necessarily have the tidiness on the level it needed to be to be a good printmaker who's making additions. Mm -hmm. And then I started taking sculpture, and I realized there was so many different processes in that. I guess um, I could be a little bit looser and more free than I could in printmaking. And it seemed like the thing that the process in printmaking was the thing that I really liked a lot, or the facet of printmaking that kind of kept me there. And I found that sculpture was scratching that itch, but on so many different fields. Like, uh, I was taught how to weld. I did a lot of metal casting and a foundry as an undergrad, but I, I did miss out on a lot of woodworking and carpentry skills, which is weird because that's primarily what I'm using now as like one of the backbones of my studio practice. If we think about maybe the time, um, those initial kind of years, there's a lot of maybe 
I don't know, projects that you're not super interested in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. So, so things where you're kind of like, you're committed for sure, but you're, the kind of like success rate is like, oh, I could do better. Um, but what, what, what kind of things were you interested, I guess, in making um, by the end of it? And I'm kind of curious, especially because your, your materials now, especially are kind of, you know, everywhere. But um, were you making a lot of wood pieces then to finish? Um, was it more like kind of formal and, and, you know, what you would maybe think of as uh, functional, I guess? <laughs> no, it, it's um, the work that I was making coming out of undergrad at the University of North Dakota was unlike what my work looks like now at all. Maybe the only thing that's connected is a, a similar psychological tone, but visually and formally very different. I was uh, doing stylized, figurative, uh, cast bronze and cast aluminum pieces that were um, situated within like some type of, I don't know, not a landscape, but maybe more of a structure built from scavenged components that I would find uh, along shelter belts. So mm -hmm. a lot of steel that I was welding together, um, old agricultural implements from turn of the century. I'd go around with a pickup truck and a oxyacetylene torch and I, you know, would of course ask permission if I could, you know, do some scavenging and I'd just pull that in there and start harvesting the pieces I wanted and then assemble them into some type of form and integrate this uh, figurative casting with it. And there was always um, some type of metaphorical and metaphorical narrative quality to it that's not so overt in the work that I'm making now. At, at the time, then, was was the process um, really kind of open to, I don't know, I, for lack of a better uh, phrase, like working on the fly, you know what I mean, as opposed to kind of have everything meticulously, like, planned out? You're going to find, you know, something that's going to elicit some kind of reaction, and then maybe you kind of make a decision to add it to something else? or Yeah, totally. There was a lot of uh, intuitive... Um assembly happening like getting the components would kind of direct where i was going to go and sometimes i'd be sitting on pieces for a long time until i found a, a use for them but i think i was kind of like missing some things too um when i was doing that i was i think i kind of get lost in the process and lose sight of the big picture a mm -hmm. little bit and a lot of the criticism of the work i was making at that point which i was kind of unaware of was that it looked a lot like outsider art or folk art because I was using these pieces from agricultural equipment and their identities are are still there even though they're fragments from this machine. People have an idea of where they came from and they, you know you might usually see that in some type of uh, you know. Well, I'm just thinking like uh, driving by like a rural area and there's like a farmer who you know got got bored and maybe has some creative tendencies. And he was like, well, I'm going to fire up the welder and just use all the scrap that I have. I think there was something kind of in keeping with that, even though I had a, a formal training in art. So I think that was an issue. Um, it's interesting to think about that kind of time period too, because um, I don't know, you realize too, like how, how little time, you know, that is really um, when you think about like the amount of time it takes to, really make stuff that you're interested in or like make stuff that really speaks of who you are mm -hmm. or your kind of experiences. So I think that makes total sense. Um, you know, cause like, I think also like 
especially looking at the work now, there's kind of probably a lot more you, you know, in the work. Um, gosh, it sounds so sophisticated for me to say it like that. <laughs> um, but it's, I, I think that makes sense, right? I mean, like there's – especially like at a younger age too, like there's um, – I don't know. Like it, it takes time, I guess, to figure out, you know, who you are and how that fits in there. Absolutely. And And so did you wind up – kind of graduating and, and moving on right away or what did you wind up doing um i guess after that period it, it was difficult i knew i wanted to leave grand forks north dakota i felt kind of trapped there mm-hmm. there wasn't it, it it seemed like it was more of a dead end and i wasn't going to move forward um i was very fortunate to be in a program that had a grad like grad students in sculpture at that time and I hung out with them a lot. And though I was like way behind them as far as like the knowledge in art theory and art history and even like process knowledges, they were a good group to be around because they demonstrated very well like the work ethic that was needed and just like staying interested in your own pursuit or your own studio practice. And I feel like that's the thing that I really learned as an undergrad from these grad students was, you know, just to like maintain being an artist. Mm-hmm. And I didn't exactly know where I was going to go, but I knew I wanted to leave where I was because it didn't seem like it had um, much of a future for me. So I was applying to graduate schools. I really wanted to get that experience, and I really felt like I was lacking in a lot of areas to be a professional artist, and that graduate school would help with that a lot. And uh through that process, I think I also realized that I <laughs> I had some strange expectations about what grad school was, um, and I did not get in anywhere the first year I applied. And the second year I applied, I got in at the University of South Dakota, and that was the only school that accepted me. And uh, I, I went there gladly just to find some new scenery and uh, get into a new area that you know where I'd be meeting new people and being presented with new ideas. So that was the first step. And I'm curious, too, because you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of being a bit more isolated, you know, in terms of looking at art history and um, Mm -hmm. contemporary art. Were there things that you were interested in or in and around that time that kind of really started to spark your interest in terms of like how your sculptures could be, I guess, made or, you know, like in terms of how you could expand on them? Well, I I think I fell into a trap as an undergrad. I got very comfortable with... um, MIG welding and the assemblage process I was using with these found components and then also metal casting. And I, I feel like I, I, for a long time felt like that was the only way I could make work, which is a problem, especially within sculpture, which, you know, really is open to the artist using any materials, any processes, as long as it fits into this, you know, nebulous realm, which is contemporary sculpture, like literally anything that you can trip over Mm -hmm. is occupying physical space. So I I definitely wasn't utilizing it the way I should be. And once I got to South Dakota, I uh, continued making or using the same processes I had been as an undergrad with the metal casting and uh, metal fabrication. But With that as kind of a base camp, I started stretching a little bit more and doing some things that were maybe uh, out of character. And I started doing these uh, ready-made assemblages or assisted ready-mades that were 
very colorful, um, different from the work I had been making, which was always using more of a natural oxidization for these different metals, looking like it had been outside, very industrial, you know, kind of stereotypically masculine and very modernist looking. And doing something that was more bright, shiny, contemporary in appearance, and maybe a little bit more pop art. So it felt new and different, and that was one of the first things that kind of started getting me exploring these other avenues that I really ignored as an undergrad, mostly because it seemed like there was so much I needed something to hold on to to feel like I could manage it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and getting into classes where I was being presented with more contemporary art. One of the problems as an undergrad, I did not have a an art history class that got past surrealism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I kind of didn't know where to look on my own. So there was all of the, like this whole world that I was unaware of. And when I was at the University of South Dakota, I started getting more of a glimpse into that and like trying to figure out where I wanted to situate my work based on what my interests were at that time. But you spent a couple of years there and then... Yeah, I was... Well, actually, I was at the University of South Dakota for one year, and they were in a difficult transitional time. And there was a lot of instability in the sculpture program, and I ended up transferring, um, going through the whole application process a third time while I was a grad student. And I was accepted at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I ended up going. And uh, that had its challenges, but it was ultimately the right decision at that time for me to go there. And that's where I finished my MFA. And uh, that kind of, like, set the tone for what was going to happen after grad school. But while I was at UNL, I continued to get into areas where I was more uncomfortable and at a certain point it started to make sense to be working in more of an abstract mode Mm -hmm. which was so different from how i had thought about making art before which always had to have some type of representation or narrative quality or um figures in it actually to act as like a what i thought was like a natural entry point for the viewer were were there any kind of like I don't know, big, I put that in parentheses, big artists that you were kind of like looking at at this time, either, you know, in, in sculpture or, you mm-hmm. know, installation or outside of that, that kind of, you know, were able to kind of articulate what you wanted to do. Or again, I, I don't know how that works for every artist, you know, some, like I find myself, I wind up looking at things that, you know, I don't make anything like this, but it really kind of informs, you know, what I'm interested in some ways, you know, I, I started looking at a lot of post-minimalist artists while I was in grad school uh, at UNL. So a lot of Martin Purrier, a lot of Richard Deacon, Tony Craig, Anish Kapoor. And and looking at their forms mostly. But then also I became very engaged in kind of misusing materials or taking a material that has a specific function and you know for why it was created and finding another way to use it within the work I was making. And a lot of that came from deciding I was going to use polystyrene foam or pink foam. Like a, it's a commercial insulation that comes in sheets. And I started laminating that together into forms and then carving it and then putting some type of skin over it or a different surface. And while I was there, I was just kind of 
taught that that's how you dealt with this material. It was something that shouldn't be left on its own. It's kind of more of like a, a set design problem than a sculpture problem, really. Mm-hmm. So I was coming up with these, I guess, you know, like novel solutions to hide this material. And that, I think, was really, really beneficial, too, and maybe started connecting more with the problem solving I was doing as a as a child in the woods, trying to figure things out and not really like knowing what each thing was used for. So I think that started to kind of direct my studio practice where I was taking something and putting it in a context that you hadn't seen it, seen it before and maybe misusing some of these materials intentionally. How do you, how do you kind of arrive at something like if you're starting to put, put something together to see the way that the components work? Um, if you're not planning everything out to like a T I would say at that time, a lot of it was formal as far as like what type of effect I can get with these materials, like just brushing wood glue, many, many layers of wood glue onto a form that was like a form that's made out of polystyrene and then putting essentially like this first abstract piece that I made. I put six gallons of type bond two, like brushed onto the surface of this form. And I, Really, it came from this place of not wanting to use a resin just because they were so expensive and toxic. And it was like, there's got to be some other solution. So part of it was practical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, wood glue, when it sets, it's essentially uh, acrylic and it's water-based. But all these different layers on top of the pink made this very vibrant, almost glowing form. So I think that was a moment where there was like this transformation that happened with the materials and produced this formal thing that I was not expecting. And uh, initially I was going to paint over it with spray paint because I wanted to make this form look very much like a craggy rock. And I ended up leaving it as this iridescent glowing orange plasticky rock form. And I think that was something that I came back to later where it was more of this honesty with materials, which is definitely something that's informing my practice now. It's like one of the rules I've set up for myself. Like everything that's there is being itself. It's not necessarily pretending to be something that it isn't. It just might be placed in a context that you're not accustomed to seeing it in. And so was there like a a specific kind of, um, you know, graduating show or kind of like idea that you had that kind of you know, all, all arrived at this point where it all made sense or? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, initially I'd started using the polystyrene or pink foam because it was a way I could make a form rather quickly. That was also very light. So it was very practical for grad school. I could move very quickly. And a lot of times we were having group critiques every two weeks and there was this, you know, kind of was implied that we needed to have new work for each critique. So that presented a lot of pressure and polystyrene ended up being something that I could manipulate very quickly. So it was something I'd been working with most of the time I was at UNL and I was there for three years and my thesis show all of these realizations about um, just like letting the materials be themselves finally took hold. So everything in the show was more of a, abstract form, very organic, but then using the polystyrene, which is very synthetic and also a material that usually is not seen in its appropriate context as something that's hiding in the walls as a 
insulation. And usually within a lot of sculpture, it's this invisible core. So using that in conjunction with great stuff, expanding foam, which is also like uh, for sealing cracks and gaps. It's the foam in a can. Mm-hmm. So you can usually see it like peeking out of crevices. So I was using that, but letting it stay there and letting it be a part of the visual composition. And then also Elmer's glue, which as a white glue, it was translucent or transparent enough where you could still see the materials underneath it. And that was acting as a, a strengthening agent to kind of like hold all these loose things together and give it the skin, but a skin that also let you see what was underneath instead of completely encasing it and hiding it, which I had been doing for a little while. So all those things working together seemed like a a good end to (laughs) what I had been doing as a graduate student there. And I was happy with it at the time, but as soon as I was done with graduate school, it was something I really wanted to get away from. And uh, I didn't feel like I necessarily owned that work. There was definitely part of me in it, but it, it felt like I had arrived there through a lot of direction that I didn't necessarily agree with all the time. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of itch or need within me to transition to the next point and figuring out how to do that was a a difficult thing to do. Kind of talked a little bit about the formal ideas, but would you say like at the time um, you were kind of making more like, like uh, individual sculptures or would you describe them more as installations or I don't mean to make that sound silly. I'm just trying to get an idea of where you're Mm. thinking at it as like a a point of, uh, you know, reference. Are they supposed to reference themselves? Mm -hmm. Do they kind of reference some of the kind of places that we've been talking about a little bit in terms of, you know, um, finding instances of different materials and then putting them together. Um, Because I think that's important, you know, because, again, it kind of distinguishes, like we were talking about earlier, those kind of more formative pieces that we make that tend to, I don't know, feel like something that we already know versus something that we're kind of discovering, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, I think there is a – the only thing that may be common with the work in my thesis show and a lot of the work I did as a grad student at UNL and the work – that I was doing as an undergrad is that I was doing a lot of exploration with materials. But at this point, I'm still thinking of them as standalone sculptures where if they were in a group show, you know, they can maybe hold their own. But thinking about them more as a body of work and how they interact in a gallery space and how they are installed together, not necessarily as what we think of as installation, but just how all of these objects exist in one space together and why scale is important and why placement is important and how the viewer's body is interacting with these things. Mm-hmm. As far as how I got there, I, I, I got into, well, I, I went through a, a really um, tough breakup and the work that I had made, been making that was more narrative, more allegorical or relying on metaphor just didn't seem right anymore. And I was, bothered by all of these intangible feelings that I was having um, as I was going through this breakup and just thinking about how miserable I felt on the inside of my own body, like having this anxiety, you know, manifesting as a, you know, a knot in the pit of your stomach or, you know, like in your center and just being very restless and trying to like 
figure out ways where I could stay asleep at night and all these different intangible things started directing what the work looked like. And I think that was my road into a, like a more abstract form was trying to explain these things that were inside of me and didn't have a face. Everyone knows what they are. They know what they feel like, but we can't know what they look like per se. And I think with the polystyrene foam, it was referencing something that, at least in appearance, seemed organic. It seemed of the body, even though it was very much a, is a synthetic material. And then all these other things were that I was using the white glue, the expanding foam, are things that are meant to not be seen, or you know, are are there to hold things together. So it became like this metaphor within the work for uh, shedding light on things that are meant to be hidden or don't necessarily have a face of their own. So if there was some type of conceptual undercurrent going through that, that's what it was. But of course, if you're making work, you know, from a place of uh, anxiety, Mm -hmm. as you're going through a breakup, you're going to get through that. And at a certain point, um, that impetus to make work that way isn't going to be genuine any longer. And I think that was another thing that started directing how I was going to change the form of these materials I had been working with. I needed to get into a place that had some more longevity because, like I said, you know, the the thesis show was something where I felt like it was my work, but it wasn't completely directed by me. So that was one reason to want to move on. But also I felt like it wasn't genuine anymore either. And that's an even better reason to stop what you're doing in my opinion early on we were talking a little bit about you know or at least you had mentioned that like uh photography in in today's world is kind of like you know the drawing of our world um Mm -hmm. and i'm curious you know like for myself i I find that like when i'm in a particular place at kind of the right time in the right instance i kind of that kind of evokes something in me that makes me you know want to make something from it Mm -hmm. But it's something that I kind of recognize when I see it. Are there kind of instances, like in terms of your own practice, that you um, are able to pull from in that capacity? Are there, I don't know, long walks in the woods? I don't, I don't know. Is, is there anything like kind of outside of the studio um, from like a real world kind of experience that you wind up pulling in, or or is it like simply finding one of these, you know, things that feel like it's you know dropped out of space and you know mm-hmm. placed there, you know? Well, I think uh, this is a really good topic to bring up because now within my studio practice, I am realizing that I'm somebody who's paying attention to a lot of small details that only really, you know, like there's subtle things that are in the environments around me. A lot of it is happening when I'm happening when I'm walking or driving or kind of like being in this transitional state where I'm going from one destination to the other. My mind is wandering a little bit and I can start to notice these things. And especially on routine trips, certain things get stuck in my mind. And, uh, I didn't really understand that this was something within my, or something that I could use in my studio practice until I moved to Minneapolis and being in a larger urban setting and walking a lot more just because it was more practical and I was in a neighborhood where I didn't have to drive everywhere, I was noticing all of these cast-off objects that people had put out on the boulevard because they knew that somebody would pick them up. And that was something that was a major turning point, I think, in getting to the type of work that I'm making now as, you know, 
being um, a transition from what I was doing in graduate school was knowing that everything around me can be used to make work, be it just like a reference or me picking up the actual object and putting it into a work or me finding an object and breaking down the materials and synthesizing them into a new form. Um, there was a way that I really enjoyed by taking this thing that seems like it's lived a life and then giving it a new life within the work that I'm making. And it seems like it's still, it has history, but it still has this potential to like become something else where it's kind of floating between seeming like it was made a long time ago, which part of it was, but then also like it was made maybe two hours ago and kind of like keeping this freshness in the work. And that's a big shift that's happened from the work I was making in graduate school to the work I was making now. And a lot of it just had to do with, yeah, being in a different environment and noticing things and realizing that that's maybe how I operate best um, and being sensitive to the spaces I'm in and starting to pick up these things that are there for the taking if you choose to notice them. So hearing you kind of describe things like that, it makes me want to kind of force you to break down some pieces that I think are really interesting uh, from your website. And I guess the first one is Frozen in Place, which is kind of like an outdoor uh, installation with uh, salt licks. And then the other one is a, a series called Homebodies. So if you could just kind of, you know, maybe break down the different modes of, of working for those different types of work and maybe we could talk about some other stuff as well. No, yeah, no problem. There's a lot of uh, layers in that piece, and it honestly didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. Yeah, it was coming from uh, just experiences of you know living in Minnesota and the Dakotas, where winter is very, very harsh, and it lasts an awful long time. It really holds on. Um, what I wanted these salt licks to eventually do, you know, through being outdoors for a year or more, was start to slump together and make what looked like a snowbank. Mm -hmm. So with these livestock salt licks, I'd stack them into a composition, but then also like had hidden debris and different objects within it, um, which was kind of like this connection to seeing things emerge as the winter thaw comes in and you might start to see like a bike tire sticking out of a dirty snowbank. That's the type of experience I wanted to elicit with this piece. But I hadn't, like, experimented with the salt enough. I knew that it, once broken down, it had this look and would mound up because it doesn't, you know, dissolve mm -hmm. the way that sugar would. It's going to be there. But the thing I was not ready for was that these salt blocks started eroding at the same rate while sitting on top of each other and there was enough space for the water to flow around them. So they never really got to a point where they were slumping together into what looked like a snowbank. They started looking like these giant rot, rotting teeth sitting on top of each other. So I think I missed my mark on um, eliciting the experiences that I was relying on um, as far as objects being revealed after a winter thaw starts. And there is a part of it, I guess, too, like just coming across these salt licks in the woods when I was a kid because hunters would put them out for deer, really just to like keep them in that area so they could hunt it again the next season. So, yeah, it's like a, that piece for me, I felt like I was coming from like a, a good place, but ultimately I don't 
I don't know that I got the viewer to the place I wanted them to because the form wasn't doing what I thought it would do as a erosion and weather and all these other things that um, can affect an outdoor piece that, you know, isn't made of a lasting material. Um, yeah, I just, I didn't know exactly how it was going to work. And I guess in, in transitioning that, the, the homebody pieces, um, again, these are the ones that I was kind of referencing that are maybe mm-hmm. kind of like literally things that are lifted from your family's um, yeah. uh, history. Were, were those kind of influential in terms of, again, thinking about that relationship of, of what you're choosing and, you know, how you're kind of starting to put these things together? Yeah, definitely. Um, and those are very coming from a very pure place. And I didn't even start thinking about this until I had moved to the Twin Cities after graduate school. And at that point, I was at the closest proximity to my family that I had been in for probably, ooh, see, four years for sure. So I was going home frequently before I found a job, and I was using um, my dad's shop as a studio and working in there and seeing all these objects and also just being around my parents more. And I, I had this realization one winter uh, day when <laughs> it was too cold to be out in the shop. It was actually too cold to be upstairs in my parents' house <laughs> because there was this harsh wind blowing and we could actually feel it coming through the walls of their log home in a way. Like the, the um, joints between the different logs were, you know, frosting over so it's just like we decided, like, well, let's just go down in the basement. That's where the, um, you know, television or den is. And we just started watching movies, and that was the first time where I'd actually, like, hung out with my parents like that for a long time. And just, like, sitting there and watching them fall asleep as, you know, they're cozied under blankets and watching movies. Um, I just realized that my parents, you know, had, like, aged. And in my mind's eye, that I still held this appearance of them where they were younger and now I'm seeing them in front of me you know at the age they are and it was it was kind of a gut punch in a, in a way you know and like knowing that my parents aren't going to be around forever and it was like something very realistic happened um in that regard where you know I, I knew that this moment that I was having was very precious and it made me want to think more about like how I could work some of these feelings into my own studio practice and as far as, like, talking about the homebodies, uh, that body of work, it is something that I only want to engage in when I feel like it's coming from a very pure place. I'll talk about the piece Den Mother, which incorporates my mom's stocking cap that she wore when I was a kid. So I have a lot of these embedded memories within that object of how I see my mom, especially during the winter um, when we'd be putting up wood because we were burning wood in our furnace. So being outdoors and working with my parents, you know, this was like this indication of what my mom looked like at that time. And she was also my den mother and Cub Scouts. So part of the form of this is relying on a Pinewood Derby car, also making the form look a lot like a log, and then incorporating the stocking cap into it to make it this... um, kind of kernel, I guess, of my experience of a certain relationship with my mom based off of childhood memories and experiences. So I haven't made any work in that body for about two years now. And it's because I don't want to approach it, like I was saying, 
from a place where it's like, yeah, I just feel like I need to make some. I really want to have a good reason to approach those because they are um, kind of like precious to me in a different way than the other work is. Well, and I guess just because we're making distinctions and so like your your current series that, that you've been working on, mm-hmm. maybe there's a, a piece that we could kind of talk about from that. And I guess just because there's so many images of it, is the, the placeholder piece is very interesting to me. Yeah, I'm coming off of two <laughs> solo shows that were happening at the same time, uh, which was a very challenging experience. If I It came from me like goofing up my calendar, honestly, and thinking that I would be able to move one show to the other space, but then realizing that I had a good three weeks of overlap, and I was like, oh, um, yeah, I'm going to need to make two separate shows for this to work out, or I'm going to have to cancel one, and I don't want to have to do that. So Placeholder is weird in that I initially made most of that piece last summer, and then I never showed it, and it's just kind of been sitting in my studio and at that point, it was the more of the rock form piece that's carved out of polystyrene foam, and then this homemade miniature sawhorse that resides over it and holds it in place, or cradles it, or mothers it, or just um, has this really—I don't know—nurturing, but maybe also repressive nation, um, relationship with it. There's a little bit of tension in how it's being held in place. So that piece ended up being in um, the show I had recently at the Kimmel Hardy Nelson Center for the Arts in Nebraska City. And within that show, I realized that I was going to have to make some type of transition from the work to the gallery space, in that the space there um, has some architectural features that can be kind of difficult to deal with when you're making sculpture, and that you're work could totally be dominated by the space if you let it. And there's a carpeted floor, which could, you know, like potentially make the work visually look kind of bad. So I was trying to think of strategies to deal with that. And I ultimately came up with a solution of building pedestals specifically for these pieces that would act as a transition between the floor and the other materials But then also thinking of these pedestals as being part of the piece and more of like a collage aesthetic, like I'm using it as a compositional element. Um, It's not just a a place to put the work on. So with Placeholder in particularly, I wanted to do something a little bit different than I had done with the other pieces that were in this exhibition. And I didn't give it the type of pedestal that is what you would expect, um, being like this clean very pristine space for it to sit on. I instead found a a used piece of plywood that's in the warehouse where my studio is. And I liked the way that it looked, like with the wood grain. It was a little different than I'd seen a lot of plywood. And I found out recently it's because it was rotary cut instead of cut in sections. So it's like this peeling around the tree so you can get this consistent wood grain. And there was something about it in that like manufacturing where it looked a lot more like water. It also made me think about like a dry landscape and wanting to kind of like make a place for placeholder that was a solution to get it off of the floor, but also give it a little bit more of an identity. So I ended up changing the title of the piece, still placeholder, but then semicolon Memorial Park because I thought it looked kind of like a park or something that's very contrived to be a tourist um, kind of excursion. Mm-hmm. 
And that, that whole body of work, which was, was in a distance learning, is based off of myself observing these fake rocks that are uh, along a drainage ditch or greenway in Lincoln, Nebraska, and how continuing to see them, I continued to be captivated by them, and I didn't know why for sure. And then once I realized, it was like, wait, these fake rocks remind me of a place that isn't here. They remind me of uh, being in the Badlands in South Dakota. Like They seem very Western for Eastern Nebraska. So part of it was just this curiosity of, like, why are these things situated in this, you know, like, drainage ditch? It's like, is it to make this manufactured landscape seem more natural? But then you're putting in, like, fake rocks that are not rocks that you would see in this part of Nebraska or, you know, like, in the Midwest. Or is it just there to kind of, like, act as this, you know, I don't know, entertainment there's, it's like they were fake, but they weren't trying to be artificial. It's like they knew that they were fake, so it was like, is it entertainment? Is it kind of a surprise? Is it fun? Um, I had all these questions about it, but the thing that really stuck with me was being in a, an environment where I have, like, a memory trigger that conjures another environment, and that really brought this whole body of work together and is keeping it relevant to me is, like, how I can build this new thing out of two things that I know, one at hand and the other remembered, and make some a completely new experience with them. So um, that's kind of where placeholder is situated, I guess. It's relying on these fake rocks, um, giving me another way to use the polystyrene foam that's been around in my practice for getting close to a decade now, and just finding new ways to use it that are appropriate for it. The pink looks a lot like these natural rock forms, specifically uh, Sioux Quartzite, which you can find in South Dakota that has more of like a pinkish hue to it. The lamination lines being more of like a stratification in the rock. They lend themselves naturally to that. And then also that these fake rocks in Lincoln, Nebraska, are more than likely made out of that and then covered with a mixture of dyed concrete to give it more of like a rock face. Mm -hmm. So there's this weird um, amalgam of all these different things that just kind of like made sense together based on my history of making, my own memories, and my current context, and then relying on a lot of these like material interests I have as a sculptor and also... Um, drawing upon uh, some of the occupations I have as an exhibition fabricator and also a shop technician. Well, and, and just to kind of ask a loaded question then in terms of just, you know, somebody that might come in and, and experience this show, are you just kind of looking for them to kind of, I don't know, just to see one, like a glimpse of one of these fragments and, you know, see their, their, I guess, wheels start turning, you know what I mean? Like in terms of just seeing something where they're kind of like, oh, that, you know, that kind of seems familiar. Like, it's weird because I know I, I say it's loaded because you could ask that about any any kind of art, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that expectation is obviously there. But, you know, especially when it's something that isn't as, you know, outwardly recognizable. Do people kind of like talk to you about things that they remind you of or what kind of experiences um, would viewers talk to you about? Yeah, it's, um, I think there's a lot of different things that they could be paying attention or layers that 
based on the individual, are going to, I guess, conjure their first, uh, I'm trying to think of what, what's the best way to say this, how they situate themselves with the work or how do they place themselves? Like, what's the access point for them is maybe the best term to use. Um, there's definitely something there for individuals who are engaged in woodworking. I'm always thinking about how can I take like a really what we think of as being like a sophisticated craft skill and work it into some material that's, you know, traditionally undeserving of that type of attention. Mm -hmm. So that's a part of it. And that's me thinking about how can I mix up the speeds that I'm working in and doing something that's much more refined, that's much more slow, that's much more deliberate and juxtaposing it with a more gestural speed of material handling. I think there's enough like distance or, static that it sometimes can be hard for people to get into the landscape of it because I think materiality is like a a big surface part of the work and it takes a lot of looking for a lot for most viewers to start distilling like a place from it I think they might have like and again I don't know for sure but what I'm hoping is that they feel a connection to it that they can't really articulate as in, this seems familiar, but I don't feel like I've exactly been here before. And if they're willing to take the time to start unpacking those things, I think that they might arrive at some of these ideas. I know if I'm there to point them out, it certainly makes a, it expedites the process. And people are like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I get what you're doing. But And that can be with people who have a lot of experience at looking at art. And for those who don't, I think they can very easily, you know, come into the exhibitions and be like, is it complete? Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on exactly. This, there's something something about it that seems um, very off-putting or not what they were expecting. Well, and I think for me, like, I, I find myself in those situations, like, I, it's almost like the more simplified something looks like, the more that I'm looking Mm-hmm. like for some sort of complexity or something that's hidden in it, you know, like even like, um, you know, like that piece that we talked about, the one that's altered um, placeholder Memorial park. Like you kind of want to like get down and see if there's something on the bottom of this board that everything is sitting on. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like, so there's something about that that I think is really interesting about the work in general is um, cause there are these sides that feel like a facade or they feel very slick, but then you see, you know, all the construction behind it or, you know, just how some of these things are being held together. Um, and again, I, I think, in that sense for myself anyways, you, you start to kind of want to come up with a narrative or figure out a narrative or like, Oh, there's a shim there. Why is that there? Um, <laughs> you know, like, like things that, that feel out of place. Um, but then they kind of take on this meaning. So it, it's kind of interesting to, to be able to look at that and also to kind of leave it open enough. You know, I think that's one of the things that's really exciting about this. Um, and looking at this is to kind of, you know, piece something together for yourself, especially, and to see where that lines up with uh, your thoughts on it. So, yeah, Thanks. Yeah, one of the things that I've been, or one of the aspects of this body of work that has um, really become more and more important in the past year or so is trying to make the viewer shift between two ways in which they're perceiving the work, sometimes uh, in a pictorial space and then actual space. And there are some things that 
are understood better as drawing elements within a lot of these pieces, and then there are things that are understood better as um, forms or objects. And trying to f find when it's applicable, you know, kind of like this tension between how we're viewing these. Sometimes it's a forced perspective or um, playing with scale within the work, too. I think they're within some of the newer work, I've definitely been paying attention to. You're going to get one read on this piece from a distance of, say, you know, 15 to 20 feet. You might get a pretty good understanding of its overall composition and see it as a complete object or sculpture from that distance. But then as you get closer, um, changing the scale on a lot of things, where what appeared to be debris or dust from the 15 to 20 feet away on closer inspection is like something that a very minute carved object or something that looks like debris is something that's actually been handled and considered for a while. So kind of having these different surprises there and keeping the viewer, I guess, kind of on, on guard a little bit or at least ready for something that's unexpected. That's, that's something I really want to do. Like let a, like if someone's willing to engage with this, let there be a surprise or a reward for continuing to explore the work. So you're, you've wrapped these shows. Again, I apologize so much for uh, <laughs> the timing of uh, life and studio not meeting for this, um, and especially for studio break, so I apologize. But um, So you're just working now on, on new work after wrapping up these shows and putting stuff together. What's going on um, in terms of that, that studio work and what we can <laughs> expect? Well, um, earlier this week I just brought all of my work back from these two shows. So my studio space right now is completely clogged with work <laughs> and I need to figure out exactly how I'm going to resolve that issue. I mean, hopefully at some point this, these you know pieces will be in other exhibitions and I'll have some space, but honestly it's so jammed up right now. I don't feel comfortable starting new work. Um, I, I have a lot of particular things that I do in the studio, which I know a lot of artists do, but I keep a really neat, tidy studio space where all the tools and equipment are very organized. The space is organized and uh, it's kept clean. And I do a lot of sweeping <laughs> just to uh, sometimes get myself into a headspace where I can start working on making art again. And I'm definitely feeling a little, a little tired after having the pressure of coming up with these two different ideas for two very different spaces. And I do have, I guess, kind of an impulse to be in the studio and picking at some things, but I'm, I guess I'm okay with kind of taking more of a slower pace at it right now and knowing that I probably won't have the same amount of time where I can focus on hammering out two different shows. I mean, they're operating under the same body of work, but they had to do very different things based on the spaces they were in. So I kind of, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a respite from thinking about it right now and letting things percolate a little bit or simmer. Sure. Sure. And think about how, like what I can do with these shows also. And I think it'll probably be a time of me putting out more proposals now that I have, uh, 
what I feel is a much more stable body of work than I've had in the past few years. Well, and of course, everyone can go uh, check out your work at joshjohnsonart.com. Again, there'll be a link, but is there any other place? Are you on Snapchat, you know, sharing sharing sculpture uh, in progress or any other places that people should go check out work or... No, the, the website will be the best. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Snapchat. Um, <laughs> I'm on Facebook and I will post things on there too. But yeah, the uh, the best way to look at the work will be the website. And uh, I will be documenting some of these newer pieces um, within the next week and getting them up there. So awesome. there will be fresh images from the show I had in Iowa City. So. Excellent. Well, again, thanks so much for, uh, you know, humoring me, especially with this schedule, but I really appreciate you letting me ask all these questions. And again, it's been really interesting uh, talking about your work. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. You know, this is, this has been great. Thanks again to Josh for joining us and you can check out his artwork at joshjohnsonart.com again or follow that link right in the blog post and just a quick reminder i brought up the 2016 competition earlier in the episode again we're going to have details about that uh shortly in august but we are looking for uh, other exhibition spaces and collaborators so if you're interested in doing something with studio break and maybe you've got some uh calendar space open we're really trying to blow out our fifth year uh, by having it you know, chock full of opportunities for artists. So if you're interested in collaborating with Studio Break, uh, please uh, send a, a direct message of some kind. Um, again, it'll be open to all professional artists, student artists, and uh, again, a lot of cool opportunities. So please stay tuned for that in August. If you are new to Studio Break, again, you can check out many of the other episodes that we have on studiobreak.com. Again, each of those have images of work and these lengthy interviews. So please check them all out. Again, if you happen to listen in iTunes and you like what you hear, please do us the huge extra step of uh, leaving some comments there so that other uh, podcast junkies from around the world can uh, find this one. Again, it really helps out. So Please do that if you can. You can also share the heck out of this podcast. We'd really appreciate it, especially now that uh, I'm coming out of hiatus uh, after uh, getting married and all sorts of life stuff going on. So please help spread the word. If you love social media, please make sure to follow our Tumblr page. That's studio-break.tumblr. You can like our Facebook page and get up-to-date information there. So please check us out there and like our page. And last but not least, please send all your cool art, your messages, and everything else to at Studio Break on Twitter. I'd like to thank Skylar Mail for providing the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.com. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, again, you can find them at DavidLinaway.com. All right, hope that you enjoyed listening this week. We'll talk to you real soon.